Good morning. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the We Tackle Life podcast, Wednesday, February 10th edition. I'm Bruce Hooley. Really pleased to have you with me this morning. We will talk some Ohio State hoops, and we'll talk about the continued courtship of Al Washington, Buckeye linebacker coach, and we will reflect on uh, what a lot of Central Ohio is feeling today, what I'm feeling today, and uh, have a faith portion for you later on in the podcast. Uh, before we get into all of that, a reminder that Hemisphere Coffee Roasters is the first and longest running sponsor of the We Tackle Life podcast, and we appreciate that association very much. I think I'm actually heading out to Hemisphere this morning uh, in Mechanicsburg, the hinterlands, as Mr. Spielman used to say. And I'm looking forward to seeing all my friends at Hemisphere. Looking forward to hearing about all the loyal customers from the We Tackle Life podcast. And Hemisphere Coffee Roasters, of course, brings you coffee from places you couldn't get it otherwise. Indonesia, Thailand, Ethiopia, on and on and on, Nicaragua. And they do great things in those communities by plugging money into the local economies. And so why not get great coffee at a reduced rate? Oh, I buried the lead. That's egregious for a former journalist like myself. Yes, as a Spielman and Hooley, well, can't get that tick out of my head. As a We Tackle Life podcast listener, you get 15% off your order when you use the promo code We Tackle Life in all caps. Just that easy. Paul, Grace, Andy, all the fantastic people at Hemisphere doing great things around the world, and you can have a part in it by buying your coffee from them, your uh, cocal chocolate, which is non-GMO, Gluten-free, sugar-free, dark chocolate. It's keto-friendly. Have I hit all the buzzwords? I think I have. So there you go. And HemisphereCoffeeRoasters.com is the website. You see it right behind me here on the wall of the now one man in a basement studios. So thank you to Hemisphere and thank you to you for listening. Okay, your basketball Buckeyes are up to number four in the nation. And I don't know how I feel about that. I, it makes me a little nervous, actually, because uh, I think the higher the ranking, the harder people come after you. And Saturday's game at noon in Value City Arena against Indiana, you know, if you know me, how much I want that win. Oh, the one at Illinois was nice, and the one at Wisconsin was nice, and the one at Iowa was really nice, and the Rutgers one was nice. But this is the one that I personally must have. So um, while the team, I'm sure, feels... No particular urgency to deliver the most prized victory on the schedule to me. I want that win over Indiana. And I would prefer that it not be adventurous. Look like the game against Maryland was going to be quite adventurous for a while. Boy, the Terps were salty at the start. They had like some kind of rock star energy or Red Bull energy in their step as they pretty much owned the first six, eight minutes of that game. In terms of just making Ohio State uncomfortable, Maryland was driving to the basket. They were abusing C.J. Walker in the low post. They were hitting the occasional three. And Ohio State just didn't appear to have the juice that it normally has. And I've actually been expecting that for a while because it's very difficult to play at a super, super high level for the sustained period of time that Ohio State has been doing that. But thankfully... Until Ohio State either figured it out or summoned the energy or responded to Chris Holtman's almost always flawless adjustments, they made enough threes to stay in it. And it was the reverse of the Iowa game where Dwayne Washington and Justin Arns caught fire late, just in time, I might add, gentlemen, 
In this game, both of them were quite proficient very early. And while E.J. Liddell struggled in the low post and Kyle Young did at the outset, Ohio State couldn't get the ball in where it wanted to get it. Maryland was double-teaming E.J. Liddell. They were blocking shots. As I said, they just seemed to have like some superhuman urgency, almost as if they knew they had to win that game to be an NCAA tournament team. Yeah, that's the situation that Mark Turgeon's squad was in. And finally, until then, Dwayne Washington and Justin Arns, ba-bam, 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 three-pointers, kept them in it. And then midpoint of the first half, Ohio State kind of started to stem the tide, and I think Maryland's gas tank emotionally started to trend toward E. And what has happened to Maryland all too often this year for Maryland fans is that they couldn't make a shot. They couldn't make a shot against Penn State, their previous timeout, they made like one shot the last seven minutes. Against Ohio State, they made one the last six minutes and change of the first half. Ohio State was able to get out to a five-point halftime lead. Should have been more. Ohio State went empty on three of their last four possessions of the first half. Then in the second half, this is not exactly how you draw up a getaway on the road in the Big Ten. The Buckeyes started two of ten from the field in the second half. But Maryland, thank you for being an obliging host, proceeded to go 0 for 8 and turned it over three times. So Ohio State was able to extend its lead, got it to double figures, and pretty much from there it was a cakewalk. A little dicey for like a 30-second period toward the end where Maryland reeled off a 6-0 spurt and got it within 9, but Ohio State righted itself. And the final 8-point margin was as close as Maryland was throughout most of the second half. So, Ohio State has now won hmm, five in a row, eight of nine. They're number four in the nation. You know, honestly, I don't know if they're number four in the nation. I I, I don't know. I, I don't watch anyone else enough to know whether Ohio State merits that or not. But here's what I see with Ohio State. A lot of good things, okay? A lot of good things just tactically. So, I have not done this yet, but I'm going to do it. Maybe this week, because I'm going to be writing about this team's mindset and the phrase they use is buy-in. And I want to see when you take the top three scorers in a game for Ohio State throughout the season, I want to see how many times that's a different group of guys. Because you would think on this team, if you had to bet who's going to lead the team in scoring, or even the first two scorers, maybe that's a more representative assessment. You'd say, well, it's going to be E.J. Liddell and Dwayne Washington, right? I bet a lot of times it's not E.J. Liddell and Dwayne Washington. It wasn't E.J. Liddell and Dwayne Washington the other night. Dwayne Washington had 18. E.J. Liddell had seven. He's only been under that once this year. The other night it was Kyle Young with 18. It was Justin Arns with 11, C.J. Walker with 11. Seth Towns. Seth Towns, sometimes his knee is balky and he just doesn't, like, kind of fit in or he doesn't make his first shot or for whatever reason Seth Towns had a lot of games where he scored zero but Seth Towns when he scores you know a guy who usually scores zero you think well he might score today he might have two might have four not Seth Towns when Seth Towns scores he scores a significant amount I'm excited to see what he can do next year when his knee is hopefully all the way back from the two years that he missed at Harvard with a knee injury so I think that's one thing that makes Ohio State very difficult to guard. You know you got to guard Arns. He's going to hit half his threes. You know you got to 
guard Liddell, and Maryland doubled Liddell, Washington made them pay. Arns made them pay. Typically, scout a team their last three or four games before you play them, Maryland would have concentrated a lot of its defensive coverage on Justice Suing. He's been a double-double machine lately. Ever since they turned over some point guard responsibilities to Justice Suing, he's been a double-double machine. He was back to early Big Ten Justice Suing the other night at Maryland. No points, three rebounds. Now, that would have been catastrophic for Ohio State at Wisconsin, at Illinois. I think at Rutgers, too, he had a nice game. At Iowa would have been catastrophic. The other night, it was like, no, we're good. We got other guys can step in, and they do. And so this is one of the things that makes Ohio State very, very difficult to defend. Can you leave Dwayne Washington or Justin Arnes at three-point line? No, you cannot. Can you leave E.J. Liddell in the low post? No, you cannot. And if you're going to decide to double E.J. Liddell and you're going to let Kyle Young roam around and sort of sort of cover him, but sort of not, Kyle Young, mm, he can do it. He can do it when you don't expect it. Kyle Young is not at all the same kind of player as Sean Marion, the former longtime Phoenix Sun, Dallas Maverick. Sean Marion was a high flyer. He was an up-and-downer, you know, running-the-court guy. He was not a low-post guy. He was a wing guy. But Sean Marion and Kyle Young are almost exactly alike in this. Throughout their careers, they were never a guy that you ran plays for. They just exerted their talents on the game in the course of the game. And at the end of the game, you look and you go, holy cow, this guy had 10 points and eight boards. Like, we didn't even worry about him. That hurt. Yeah, it does hurt. And Kyle Young went off on Maryland for 18. His motor is always running hot. And I love, I think Kyle Young is actually better when he goes and gets his offense than when they try to isolate him in the post, and he goes to work. Now, he's gotten better at that. I'll be really interested to see if Kyle Young comes back next year because I'd love for Kyle Young to come back next year. Now, I know I've had my moments with Kyle Young and complaining about his threes and all that, but eh, he's hitting them now, which I like, and I love how he plays in the post. All right, what else about Ohio State? It's not only tangible, which I just talked about. It is intangible. This team talks a lot about how they like each other. More than that, how they love each other. They're a unique team in that they play a lot of people. And I talked about this in the previous podcast, but you don't know when a guy's going to play a lot. Musa Jallo got more run the other night than he typically gets. Seth Towns got more time the other night than he, you know, you can't always say, well, I know Seth Towns is going to play 15 minutes. You don't always know that. So they play a lot of guys, and yet everybody's happy. Everybody's happy. Everybody likes each other. Everybody buys in. Now, after the game, Chris Holtman said, and I think this was a reference to, and I, I would have asked him what it was a reference to, but we get, I got one question in a postgame. I'm not complaining. I'm just saying the Zoom press conference world does not enable you to pursue a line of questioning like you would be able to pursue it in person. And so when Chris Holtman makes a comment about, you know, the narrative on us prior to the season wasn't really accurate, I'm not sure if he's talking about the narrative being that, hey, we don't really have a lot of talented guys or we're programming disarray because Caleb Wesson left early and Luther Muhammad, DJ Carton, and Alonzo Gaffney transferred. I'm not exactly sure what narrative he's talking about. I think it was, given the context of the moment, 
about how the expectations for this team were not very good because people didn't know how good of players they had. But when you have guys like Carton, who was getting a lot of minutes, Gaffney, who was a highly rated recruit, and the one that was really head-scratching was Luther Muhammad's transferring? Like, Luther Muhammad, you started almost every game your first two years. What kind of, what are you looking for, Luther? And I guess Luther was looking for a place where he could go and get screamed at by Bobby Hurley all the time because he ended up at Arizona State. What really happened was Luther had a big game against Maryland late last season, 20-some points, and he thought, hey, you know, uh, if I want to get to the league, and they all think they're going to get to the league, then I need to be scoring more. I need to get more shots. And he floated that to the coaching staff, and the coaching staff said, you know, look, we love you. you got a fantastic role on our team as a defensive stopper. You can guard pretty much five positions, and you'll get shots in the course of our offense. But for us to commit to you that we're going to run stuff for you and we're going to encourage you to take threes, we don't see that skill set in you. We, we really haven't even seen a good mid-range skill set in you. So we're not going to tell you you can't shoot. And we just kind of figure that your offense from here on out will be what your offense has been your first two seasons. Luther Muhammad thought he could go someplace and he could shoot a lot. I don't know with stats are at Arizona State or not. But I know that he's not ranked fourth in the country. And so this suspicion was out there that, hmm, Carton was playing a lot, left the team for mental health reasons. Gaffney brought in, supposed to be a big-time star, supposed to play a lot, hardly ever saw the floor. Muhammad, he's on the floor a lot, and he leaves. What is going on at Ohio State? There must be some serious dissension in that team. Caleb Wesson could come back. He's not really ready for the NBA. He didn't get drafted, but he's determined to go. So that was a narrative. Now, I will say this. The narrative may not be 100% correct, but it is also not 100% incorrect. Because when Caleb Wesson is 6'9 and 2, whatever he was after he lost a ton of weight, doesn't want to play in a low post, wants to shoot threes, wants to prove to the league that he can hit threes, that challenges you to work around that, to keep him happy, to keep him productive, to keep everybody else content. When Luther Muhammad's playing a ton of minutes and doesn't like his role when Carton's playing a ton of minutes and whatever else in his life is going on that he can't balance it with his successes on the basketball court, it's not entirely unfair or inaccurate to say, yeah, they got some challenges on that squad. Those coaches are like ducks on a pond. They're like placid on the top, but they are spinning hard underneath to keep everybody calm and together. They do not have that this year. They do not have the internal angst, unrest, dissatisfaction agendas. They just don't. And now, doesn't mean that they'll stay there for six more weeks or whatever it'll be. Well, it'll be about like eight weeks to get through the NCAA tournament. But that is what differentiates them this year from last year. Really good players, very balanced. Lots of tactical pluses, but all of that can be undone by intangible issues, which they had a year ago, conquered them, 
for the most part. Certainly by February they did. January was rough. They have not had a bad January this year. They may have some losing in front of them. They have a very tough stretch. They have to go to Michigan State. they got to play Iowa again. they got to play Illinois again. So it's not a lead pipe sense that, oh, we are unstoppable, dude. And the psyche of a 18 to 22-year-old male college basketball player with always one eye on the NBA is a fragile commodity. Put 14 of them together and try to hold it together. So I'm not making any comment about what's promised to them going forward, But and Holtman doesn't either. He just says, if we can stay in this mental mindset, we're in a good place, and they are in a good place. Uh, Al Washington, the uh, Buckeye assistant football coach who coaches linebackers, is also in a very good place. Uh, I will tell you how good after I tell you how good of a place you're in. Because if you missed the window for open enrollment health insurance in December, if the window slams shut figuratively on your fingers because you got Christmas, you got travel, you got this, you got that, and you thought, oh, I'll just ride it out. You know, plan's okay. Haven't looked at it. Don't know if I could do better. Now you get the chance to do better because uh, one of the president's 52 executive orders so far uh, allows for another open enrollment period between February 15th and the end of March. So auiinfo.com is where you go to get an assessment of whether what you're paying is justified. Do you have the plan, the copay, the doctor that you want? Okay, so they can help you with the healthcare.gov stuff if you're an individual or a family. They can also help you if you're a business and you're trying to look at what you're paying and are these the best benefits I can get for my employees. And it can help you if you're an individual and you're in business for yourself. You guys, the latter two, business owners and a person in business for themselves, can always change. There is no such thing as open or closed enrollment for you. But auiinfo.com, they are health insurance brokers. And for business owners, they offer a ton of added value in that they offer real-time HR counseling. Governor makes an order on compliance. You want to know how do I deal with this in my business? Bam, they can tell you. So. Great company, great people. They're a small business themselves, 17 employees. AUIinfo.com, AUIinfo.com. So check them out and get that health insurance checkup that you did not get in December. Okay, now to Al Washington. Al Washington has options. It is open enrollment for Al Washington as a defensive coach. Boy, he's got a lot of charisma. I like Al Washington. I told you why in the previous podcast. If he wasn't a football coach, he'd be the leader of a company He'd be, he'd be impacting youth in some way. He's just He's got charisma. Tennessee noticed it. Tennessee wants him as its defensive coordinator. They've made him a three-year offer at, I think, $1.3 million a year. And it's uh, hard for him to make up his mind. Or it's a back-and-forth bargaining session. By the time, if he decides to go to Tennessee, maybe they've upped the offer. But it's uh, Wednesday morning, and I'm just looking online for the latest updates on Al Washington, and we don't have one. So Ohio State would definitely not want to lose him. He's a great recruiter. He's a great coach. He's a star in the business. He'll be a head coach soon. Inside of five years, Al Washington will be a head coach. This could fast-track him becoming a head coach. You go to Tennessee, you do a good job at Tennessee, two, three years, somebody will hire Al Washington as head coach. He's not ill-equipped to be a head coach right now, but you know he's, um, he's probably happy. He's in his hometown, Columbus, Ohio. He's working for Ohio State. His father played for Ohio State. As I said the other day, my prediction is he'll stay. He'll get and deserve a big raise. 
What that will do with Brian Hartline, I don't know, because Al Washington and Brian Hartline are about on the same career track, and Brian Hartline is a super stud assistant coach and recruiter like Al Washington. So Brian Day will be able to attract a good coach if Al Washington leaves. They would prefer he not leave. And so we'll see what happens with Al Washington. All right. I have something on my mind that I cannot get out of my mind. And I want to share it with you because I think it's important that you mark it emotionally in your life today. It's February 10th, 2021. I am wearing a hat on the podcast today uh, intentionally. This hat is a hat with an American flag and a blue line through it. It's a Blue Lives Matter hat. I wear it today because today is the three-year anniversary of the ambush and murder of two Westerville police officers, Eric During and Anthony Morelli. Eric During was in his mid-30s. Anthony Morelli was in his 50s. Anthony Morelli, I believe, had been a peace officer for 30 years. I have been unable to get these two gentlemen out of my mind over the last three years. I I can venture guesses why. Um, Anthony Morelli played High school football at Maslin. Obviously, my friendship with Chris, that may account for that. He's a bit younger than I am, and he has a daughter and a son and a, and a lovely wife. Officer Juring had three daughters. They are in very close proximity to the age of my daughters. I remember that day very well, and I remember how desperate and confused and sad and mad I was when I heard of how they lost their lives answering a 911 hang-up call for a domestic disturbance. I have never forgotten their names, and I hope I never forget their names. And I would submit to you that it is appropriate that none of us ever forget their names. We're in a period in our country where we have a lot of passion, rancor, and disagreement around law enforcement. No one wants a law officer who acts outside the bounds of the law and his training. No police officer wants that police officer to not suffer, not experience the penalty for their breakdown in professionalism. We have an instance in Columbus right now where we have two shooting deaths by law enforcement officers, one a former law enforcement officer because he's lost his job, where two men lost their lives. There has been no final dispensation on that yet. And I am not making any comment about what should happen in those cases. And I am certainly not if those cases prove to be failures of um, correct policing. I'm certainly not making any comment about how or excusing that if, in fact, that is borne out by the investigation. But it is indisputable that Eric Joring and Anthony Morelli did not deserve to die in the line of duty 
when a career criminal came to the door after choking and strangling his ex-wife, his estranged wife, and shot them to death. It is very hard for me to know how to feel. As a person of faith, I am a recipient of enormous grace and forgiveness. And so I'm aware that God loves the person who did this and is hopeful that that person repents and his life changes and he gives his life to Christ. And I'm hopeful of that. And I don't eliminate the possibility that that could happen because God can call and change anyone's heart. And if you are humble and you want to entrust your eternal future to God, he will respond to that every single time. But it does not change my extreme sadness, anger, confusion, and uh, helplessness over the fact that there are five children who don't have their dads and two wives who don't have their husbands. And there's also now a granddaughter who will never be held by her grandfather. As Anthony Morelli's daughter has was engaged at the time of his death and married and has had a little girl. I reached out to Westerville police and uh, to police counselors trying to get a grip, a handle, an understanding of where the families are and where the city of Westerville is and the police department is after three years. And I just can tell you that they are still, it is a very raw wound still. And um, I submit to you today that if you are a praying person, pray for those families, pray for those kids, pray for those officers, and pray for our country that we can have respect for law and order, that we can have, though it may sound impossible, flawless policing, And that we can find a way around a time where we are often demonizing people who serve with valor and courage and selflessness. And I'll be honest, we are martyring people who have made a bunch of bad choices when it comes to their lives and their behavior and their disdain for the laws of our country. And so I pray for the Morelli and Joring families today. I pray that they can find comfort and encouragement and laughter and contentment because they have been thrust into a enormous life challenge that I would not 
want visited upon me or anyone. Anthony Morelli and Eric Juring will always be in my heart, and I hope they will always be in yours. And with that, uh, we'll translate to or transition to the faith portion of the podcast. Uh, tough day. So I've finished uh, reading the book of Acts. And I've now decided, well, the next page is Romans, so let's read Romans. And the reason why reading Romans makes perfect sense and studying Romans makes perfect sense after studying the book of Acts is because the book of Acts ends with Paul in Rome. And Paul has um, gone through a period of time where he's been challenged, accused by uh, the Jewish leaders, and uh, he's in prison in Rome, detained in Rome. This letter to the Romans was written before that. This was Paul writing to the Romans, saying that he was looking forward to coming to Rome. Now, when I say Romans, he was not writing to Rome and the citizenry of Rome and Nero and, uh, you know, the uh, whatever they call the government of Rome. He was writing to the Roman church, the believers in Christ who had come to faith in Christ as the gospel was spreading across that region in the aftermath of Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension. And Paul is, of course, an evangelist for that gospel. So Paul periodically would be hearing things about churches, how they were behaving, how they were practicing the gospel, and he would write them letters. I'm hearing this. I hear this is your challenge. Here's my counsel, la, la, la. So this is a letter to the Roman church from Paul. And, you know, we all know, we pretty much all have a awareness, I think, unless you really had a bad world history background, that the Roman Empire was pretty, pretty, pretty significant, pretty successful. Okay. Well, uh, look around right now and Rome is not in charge. The Roman Empire, the mighty Roman Empire, the Colosseum, the Acropolis, all those fantastic architectural buildings, all that world domination, it ended at some point. It ended at some point, just like Alexander the Great, just like the Medes and the Persians, just like every great world power in the past, it's in the past. And, you know, growing up in America, we've been in a position of strength in my lifetime, and we've got a pretty awesome military, and we've never, you know, we've never lost a war Vietnam, you can argue about. Korea, you can maybe argue about. But pretty much, you know, we dominate in world conflict. And we are the world's policemen. And I believe we are the protector of good in the world. And I believe that's been ordained by God. I believe our founders uh, were men who had enormous allegiance to, service of, or at least awareness of, God. And I'm reading a book right now. Were America's founders Christian? And the answer is yes. There's a lot of crappy retelling of American history right now where it was like they were deists, where they believed that God just 
put everything in place. Then he stood back and goes, all right, it's all up to you now. That's not accurate. It's not accurate. Might be accurate of Ethan Allen. It was not accurate of Ben Franklin. It was not accurate of Thomas Jefferson. It was not accurate of most of America's founders. Now, they weren't all perfect. None of them were. No one is. But they were not deists. Okay. So, what's my point connecting America and Rome? I don't think America's guaranteed to always be in charge. It's just not. No world power ever has been. I don't see anything in the Bible about America. The Bible's timeless. The Bible's the living, breathing word of God. Nothing in here about, oh, I'm going to establish America in 1776. Not 1619. 1776. And it's going to be the protector of the world. Mm -hmm. No, not in there. So my point is, if the Roman Empire can go down, we can go down. And right now, we have, uh, you know, we are tearing ourselves apart from within. We are, we are not united. And so if it can happen to them, if it did happen to them, it can happen to us. So how did it happen to them? I find that to be a pretty riveting question. Well, you know, if, if they were on top of the world and they're not anymore, what did they do to blow it? And so that's why I am reading Romans with a uh, a dry, spongy brain and a dry, spongy heart. I want to absorb it all, okay? So, um, let me read from Romans 1, where Paul lays out what the gospel of Christ is in one sentence. With two sentences. Romans 16, 17. Paul writes, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. So back then, you know, they looked at people, you're either Jewish, or if you weren't Jewish, you were a Gentile. So everybody, that's what he's saying. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God, perfect, perfect uh, perfection, Perfection from God is revealed. What do you mean, Paul? Perfection from God. I'm not perfect. What do you mean? A righteousness, a perfection, that is by faith from first to last. Beginning to end. A righteousness, a perfection that is by faith. Faith in what? Faith in Jesus Christ as the payment for your sins. And then he goes on to, and this is what I see, Rome. This is what I see around you, Roman church. This is what I see with the decadence of Rome. This is what I see with the militaristic bent of Rome, with all the things that I think are not good for your society in which you live. And he continues in verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. I'll read that again. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. What does it mean to suppress the truth by your wickedness? Got an idea? You don't have to come up with it. Paul's going to tell you what that means. People who suppress the truth. The truth is you're all sinners. 
I'm God. I demand perfection. I sent my son to live a perfect life, to provide the sacrifice, the payment for your sin. You have to accept him, put your faith in him. That's the truth he's talking about. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free, right? All right, so if you heed my commandments, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. All right, so he says, the wrath of God is being revealed against all those who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And here's how he has the justification for... Um, holding you accountable as a society, as a country, as a nation, as an empire for that. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen, clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. You ever looked at the snow-capped mountains, the calm ocean, or the crashing waves on the shore of volcanic beaches in Hawaii? You ever watched a volcano erupt on film in person? Ever watched a bird fly, sit on a wire, get into the ground, stick its beak in the ground that you can't penetrate with your finger, pull out a worm, fly to its nest, feed a baby, push the baby out of the nest, the baby flies away. All of that, all of that, all of those miracles in nature, all of the beauty, the majesty of how rain comes down from heaven and it replenishes the groundwater and crops grow and you eat food and bread and this and that and the other, all of that, all of that. Paul is saying is a result of God's eternal power and divine nature. It's been clearly seen, understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse about God's eternal power. And when we do our own thing, which he continues to enumerate here in Romans 1, and we don't acknowledge God's sovereignty. We don't esteem God's preeminence. Then very bad things happen individually, collectively, societally. Very bad things happen. And he goes through all those things from Romans 1.24 on to the end. So that is what I see that's applicable from Romans to our world today. And it is, it is grievous to me because when I arrived at the point in my life where I truly connected to what I'd been spared, the penalty I'd been spared from God by accepting Christ's sacrifice and what that guarantees me, eternal salvation. And then it also guarantees me the Holy Spirit, God's the third part of the Godhead inside me to help me know how to sense his call on my life. 
when I fully understood that forgiveness, it made the failure to recognize God extremely painful to me, hurtful to me. What I've done in my past, even though I've been forgiven of it, I still deeply, deeply regret it. And when I see it in the world and I see people embracing error, elevating themselves to a position of power and authority over God's power and dominion and authority in their life, that's hurtful to me. That's hurtful to me. I don't mean it. I don't mean it personally wounds me. It makes me feel bad for like on several levels. Number one, what are you doing to yourself? Don't you see what richness in life you're missing? Number two, how can you do that to, to a God who loves you? How can you do that? How can you turn a blind eye to what he's provided for you? So those are the ways that it hurts me. And, um, and if you have accepted Christ your Savior, you get that. You get that. So I pray you do get that. I pray that you um, can know what the Bible calls a peace that transcends understanding in your human mind, you really can't explain it. I've said before, I I can't explain how Chris and Steph did what they did through a 12-year cancer battle. You'd think there weren't tears and pain and angst and worry and, and anger and all. There's all that, but God sustains you through that. Right now, I think about the Joring and Morelli families, and I think this three-year battle, and today's the day, and it's, they know, you know, it Noon, that's like right when those officers knocked on the door. I mean, how do people do that? How do they get by? There's only one way. There's only one way you can do it. And do it really so that you have peace, so that you can function. You can praise God in the storm. And so I hope you find that peace. It's just, it's not like you got to, it's not like you need a treasure map and go digging for it. It's like so plain. It's right there. I'm telling you about it every single podcast. You see it. Paul said, you see it. You see God's evidence of his divine power all around you. So I pray that that's real to you today. Pray for the Morelli Enduring families today, please. Please, please, please. Um, I will be doing that. And hey, I forgot to tell you, uh, we do have, as you see on the crawl, well, you don't see it now because I'm running the uh, AUI crawl, but we have a uh, an email address. <laughs> Finally, we tackle life at gmail.com. We tackle life at gmail.com. And a reminder as we transition out, our law firm, loyal people, great people, Willis Spangler Starling, good Christian people, they will do right by you. Mark that in your mind when you need an attorney, employment law, wills, estate planning, probate, personal injury. Willis Spangler Starling's law for my trust. Trust a big deal. I hope you trust in Christ. I hope you have a good week. And um, pray for those families. Talk to you Friday. Oh, 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 oh,